as well. Philippians chapter number 3. I'd like to read two verses tonight and uh, just give you a few thoughts that I hope will be a help to you. Verse 20 says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that You'd bless Your Word, Lord. I know that in and of myself, I, there's nothing about me that would cause You to bless me or to bless this service. But in the person of Jesus Christ and in the power of Your Word, Lord, I know You can do a work in our hearts. I pray tonight that each and every heart would be touched in that way which is most needful. Father, You know what the human heart needs. You know the areas of our life that need to be surrendered to You. So I'd ask, Father, that Your Holy Spirit would do the work tonight. God, give me unction as I preach, and I pray that Your people would be willing to listen and to hear and to obey Your Word tonight. Father, we love You. We thank You for it. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter number 3 gives us a simple uh, picture here in verses 20 and 21. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't take very many words to say something pretty big. And in this passage, Paul has just got through uh, describing his life's work. We see it earlier in uh, chapter number 3, what his motto or his passion or his vision or his driving force is in life. And he speaks about pressing forward and trying to reach the mark. And uh, Paul describes how that his whole life is given to the work and to the cause of Christ. He turns his attention towards the Philippian church and gives them this exhortation of how they are supposed to live. You know, it's hard not to see, and I'm not, I don't watch a lot of uh, regular television. I, I, don't, I don't watch a lot of news. There's enough to discourage you in this world, isn't there? Amen. Uh, but, of course, anybody that's not been living under a rock has probably heard about the uh, Mayan calendar and the prediction that, oh, the world's going to end uh, this month and so on and so forth. Uh, but uh, truth be told, as was discussed earlier, nobody knows when the Lord's going to return. Amen. But we are to live in such a way as to always be prepared for that moment. The Bible speaks consistently about the return of our Lord and the responsibility for the believer to live in light of that returning. And so, though it's very likely that uh, the 21st may not be the time when the Lord comes back, it could be. The Lord could come back on the 21st if He so chose to do so. And it wouldn't have a thing to do with the Mayans either if He did choose to do that. We don't know when the Lord's going to come back, but we are to live daily in the thought of. And I believe that's what Paul's trying to drive to us in this passage. And I want us to notice three things very quickly this evening. I want us to notice the first thing that Paul deals with is the Christian's conversation. Now, that word conversation does not only mean what you say, but it also means what you do. It's an encompassing word. It's an enveloping word that deals not only with your words, but with your life. And Paul's saying that the way that we live ought to be a heavenly Way He says our conversation is in heaven. Now, what does that mean when we say our conversation is in heaven? Well, I'll give you the opposite side of it. You've heard this before. Uh, maybe you have been around somebody that was telling a dirty joke. Maybe you're the one that, uh, that rebuked someone telling a dirty joke. Or, hey, we're a bunch of Baptists. Maybe you're the one telling the dirty joke. Amen. I don't know. But uh, you've heard someone make this statement. They've said, get your mind out of the gutter. And what they're saying, of course, your mind is not literally in a gutter, 
but they're saying that your mind frame is in a base and vulgar place. Well, Paul says that the Christian's life, the Christian's words, the Christian's mindset is not in the gutter. It's not even on this world, but our conversation is in heaven. The same thought is related to us in the book of Colossians in chapter number 3. Listen to what it says in verse number 1. If ye then be risen with Christ. Now, uh, let me just simplify that by saying, if you're saved. If you claim to know Christ. If you claim to be a Christian. If you know that you're saved. If ye then be risen with Christ. Seek those things which are above. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. I want to say that a Christian ought to constantly meditate on heaven. I'm not saying he's not going to think of anything else. I know that. I know you've got to pay bills. I know you've got to tend to your house and uh, maintenance and things like that. But what I'm saying is that a Christian should always be in a heavenly mind frame. It seems as though around uh, my life and uh, maybe some of your lives, there's been a lot of death lately. And, uh, you know, when you look at someone that has lost a loved one, one thing that you immediately notice is how much they truly believe in heaven. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that we sorrow not as others which have no hope. And now you say, oh, preacher, are you saying a, a Christian ought to be happy when a loved one's died? No, that's not what I'm saying. The Bible says we sorrow, but we sorrow not as others which have no hope. In other words, our sorrowing, our grieving, though it is natural to grieve, you're going to have pain, you're going to grieve, it'll be sorrow. It's a sorrow that's tempered with heaven, with an understanding that, though if they knew the Lord, though they may be absent from the body, they're present with Christ. That it's not the end of the matter, that they're not annihilated, they're not in a state of non-existence, as some false heretic, her- oh boy, I'll get it in a second, heretics say, amen, but that they're merely present with the Lord. You see, I'm not saying that you're constantly thinking of nothing but heaven, but I'm saying you're always in a heavenly mind frame. When people say things, how many of you heard someone complain today? Raise your hand. (laughs) Yeah, that's most. If you didn't hear nobody, you know what that means. That means it was you. Amen. (laughs) We hear people complain all the time. Complaining is a part of life, I suppose. And I don't guess we'll ever get to the point when we don't hear people complaining. But, you know, sometimes complaining can discourage you if you're not careful. When you look around at this world, you see the heartache and the hatefulness of this world. And you see the sorrow of this world. It's easy to get discouraged sometimes. But a person with a heavenly outlook look, looks at it and says, Though this world is perishing, the Word of God is settled forever, and I have an inheritance that fadeth not away. This world is not the end of it. There's something further. There's something beyond it. Though this world may seem out of control, my Lord is still in control. Uh, The Bible says in Psalms chapter number 2, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? And certainly when you look around this world, the heathen are raging. The world is imagining a vain thing. Delusions are all around us. But what does it say later on in the passage? It says, but the Lord uh, sitteth in the heavens, and He set His Holy One in Zion. You see, all of the reeling and rocking of this world doesn't disrupt disrupt God's throne one bit. He's still God. He's still in control. You say, preacher, what are you driving at? What I'm trying to say is this. There's a way to live in this world with a heavenly mindset. 
There's a way to live in this world and understand that though this world is the present, it is not the perpetual. Though this world may be in the immediate, it is not the all-inclusiveness of this existence. There is a heaven. There is a God. There is an eternity. It was the famous preacher, Jonathan Edwards, uh, that preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. And Jonathan Edwards used to cry out in his sermons and he'd say, Oh God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Live ever in the daily consciousness that eternity is a reality. We find in this passage that we're exhorted for our conversation to be on heavenly things. But why are we exhorted to that? I'd say three things. First off, because our life is in heaven. That's what Colossians chapter number 3 says. It says our life is hid with Christ in God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on this earth. Uh, our, Our affections are supposed to be on heavenly things because after all, that's really, really what it's all about. You know, the truth is this life that we live here is so short, so short. I know sometimes it seems long. I'm struck by, you know, as I get older, and I I know I'm not old, you know, but as I get older, one of these days I'm going to say, I know I'm not old, and then it's going to dawn on me that I am old. Amen? Some of you hopefully will be there when that happens. But, uh, you know, I know I'm not an old man, uh, but it's funny how time changes as you get older, isn't it? You remember how long the days seemed when you were a child? Remember how long the weeks seemed and the months and the years? I remember when I was in, uh, when I was in school, when I was just a little child, I had a whole system worked up for how to make it through the school year. You see, we'd start off, and I was like most kids. Now, kids are really this way. They won't tell you this, but about halfway through summer, they're ready to go back and see their friends, aren't they? So I was ready to go back and... Uh, after about a day of school, I was over that, amen, and I was ready to get out again. And so I knew that the next thing coming up was that, what is it? Is it Memorial Day weekend coming up or Labor Day? Somebody tell me, Labor Day weekend. I knew that was coming up, and I knew that would mean a long weekend. Labor Day would pass, and then next thing I knew was uh, coming up was going to be, we had a thing called Fall Festival that we'd do every single uh, fall and that meant a whole day of goofing off and doing nothing at school. So I knew, and I was waiting for that to come up. That that was usually in late October. Next thing I was waiting on Thanksgiving to come up because I knew that was going to mean some time off from school. Next thing I knew Christmas was coming up. Boy, that was going to mean a lot of time off school. Uh, after Christmas was over and the new year started, you was about ready to kill yourself. Amen. Because there's this big long gap between you get anything. And I go incrementally through the year. You know, I find as I get a little bit older, I, I'm doing that, but I'm looking from the other direction. I'm going. Boy, where did Labor Day go? <laughs> where, where did Thanksgiving go? Where did Christmas go? Where did 2012 go? And it seems as we turn around that life is just fleeting. And as you get closer to heaven, I'm convinced that you realize how short the journey really, really was. If we were to give the illustration, we could take a marker and begin at one point on this wall and draw a line all the way around this entire building and then take it and put a dot on that line. And I've heard some people say that represents eternity. But the truth of it is this. As we live further on in eternity, this world will grow smaller and smaller and smaller because eternity is eternal. It goes on infinitely. We can't even fathom. It's not just a drop in the bucket. It's not just a drop in the ocean. But it's a drop in the infinite universe that we cannot imagine. This world is so short. So what are we really living for? The Bible says that as a believer, our life, everything that matters, everything that will last is hid in heaven with Christ. 
That's where it matters. Now, I'm not saying that what we do on this world does not matter because it does. Uh, much of what we do on this earth will, de- will determine the joy that we'll have when we're in heaven. I understand that. But I'm simply saying that this world is not the end. It's not the be-all, end-all of it. I want to say, secondly, that not only is our life in heaven, but our love as a believer ought to be in heaven as well. The Bible says, where your treasures are, there will your heart be also. I believe that if a person really loves God, he'll want to be with God. I believe if a person really loves the Lord, he'll want to be with Him. And I believe that the epitome of all of our love ought to be in heaven. You know, this world, I don't know if you know this, but if you're a Christian, this world hates you. This world hates you. It wants nothing to do with you. And if this world does want anything to do with you, it's because you're not living like a Christian. But if you really live like a Christian, this world's going to hate you. But do you know there's a place where the accepted and the beloved are accepted? Do you know there's a place where our loved ones are, a place where our treasures are, a place that we ought to love in this world, but many times we don't ever give any thought to it. The Bible says that our love is there. But I want to say there's a longing for that place that we ought to have too. And let me tell you why. Because our Savior is there. Let me tell you what the most wonderful thing is about heaven. I know I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings now, but the most wonderful thing about heaven isn't that your mamma's there, your papa's there. It it, it, isn't, and don't get me wrong, I'm sure your mama and papa were lovely people. I know mine were, and I'm looking forward to seeing them again. But the most wonderful thing about heaven is not that you don't pay no taxes there. The most wonderful thing about heaven is not that, uh, you know, everybody's of your political persuasion up there. The most wonderful thing about heaven isn't that it's only Baptists, right? That's what most Baptists think, isn't it? Up there, we know that's foolishness, don't we? But let me tell you what the most wonderful thing about heaven is most wonderful thing about heaven is what heaven's all about. And that's the Son of God. The One that saved you. I don't know if you realize that. The One that saved you, that gave His life to pay for your sins. That's where He is. That's where He is. Our conversation ought to be heavenly. But I want you to see, secondly, that we see the Christian's conversation, but we see the Christian's calling. Look what it says in verse number 20. It says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we, and I want you to underscore that word, look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's, uh, in that word look, there's so much implied. I, time would fail me to say it all. But let me say that if you, uh, if you take the word look, you have within the word look, uh, you have all encompassed the relationship between man and God. You say, what do you mean, preacher? How are you saved? The Bible says in the book of Isaiah, look unto me all ye nations. What was the command given to the children of Israel whenever they were in the wilderness and they began to complain against the Lord and the Lord sent fiery serpents and He commanded Moses to make a brazen serpent put upon a pole and lift it up there. And He said, Whosoever looketh upon the serpent shall be healed. The Bible says uh, that the Son of Man, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. When we're saved, what we're really doing is looking unto the Lord. That's what we're doing. I like that word look because it it tells me something. It tells me that works has nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. When you look unto something, you're not doing anything. You're just looking. When you look on something, you're not working in any way, shape, fashion, or form. You're just looking. When you're looking at something, you're not earning anything. You're just looking unto it. Let me say that it not only has the idea of looking unto the Lord in salvation, but, but also in sustenance. I know that uh, you've said this before and heard this before, 
someone say about a breadwinner in a family, there's people looking to you for help. You ever heard someone say that before? People are looking to you for help. People look to you for support. Do you know that as a Christian we look to the Lord for our daily needs? That's who we're looking to. That's who we're focusing on. He's the one that provides for us. Oh, it wasn't just vain and idle words when our Savior uh, taught the disciples how to pray and He said to pray and to say, Give us this day our daily bread. Who do you think it is puts that food in your mouth? You say, Well, you don't know, preacher. You know, I get out and I work hard. Yeah, who gave you the health to work hard? Who gave you the breath that you draw? Who gave you the strength that you have? Who gave you a sound mind? Maybe I spoke too soon with this crowd, amen, but... Who gave you the wherewithal to do that? The Lord did. We don't only look to Him in salvation. We look to Him in sustenance. Oh, but I like this. We look to Him to save us in the second coming as well. Now, when I say save, I don't mean in the sense of soul salvation, uh, but I mean in the sense of Him returning for His own. We're looking for Him to return. Boy, I like that. You know what I like whenever I came to God? Did you know He was looking for me? The Bible tells us in the story of the prodigal son, boy, I like this. Oh, my, oh man, I'm going to preach here in a second. Uh, the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. How many of you heard it before? Yeah, sure you have. I just want to make sure you use it late. In the story of the prodigal son, about the, uh, the son that went away, and he was the younger son. Don't let that reflect on babies of the family, though, amen. But he was the younger son. He had uh, asked for all of his father's inheritance, and he went away with it. And he uh, went out, and he, he blew every bit of it. He went to the casinos, amen. He just went. He made all kinds of new friends. He blew every bit of it, wound up in the hog stye. By the way, that's where sin will get you. And, uh, you know, I've heard people say before, there he was in, in, in the hog's pen eating what the hogs ate. No, the Bible doesn't say he ate what the hogs ate. The Bible says he fain would fill his belly with the husk that the swine did eat. You know what? Sin still left him empty. Sin still left him empty. Sin never provided for him. It took everything he had, but it never gave him something to provide for it. And there, the Bible says he came to himself. And he thought within himself, oh, how many hired servants have my fathers? They have bread to eat and to spare. Look at me. I'm the son. Here I am in the pigsty. The Bible says that he got up and he began to make the journey home. And uh, you let me use my imagination. He's coming up the old dirt road and he, he comes up that gravel driveway. And the Bible says that uh, when the father looked upon him, when the father saw him, he was moved with compassion. When he saw it, he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. He didn't come to the house and, and, and knock on the door, you know, and the butler, Jeeves, come to the door. and He said, hey, is Daddy home? And, no, 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 no. When he came home, his daddy was waiting for him to get there. He was looking for him. Can I tell you that uh, we ought to repay that favor? The position of the Christian in this day of grace as he lives and serves God is a position of looking, looking for our Lord to return. He was looking for me when I came to Him. I ought to be looking for Him when He comes to me. Why are we looking? I want to say we're looking, first off, because we're saved. Because we're saved. I don't know if you realize this. What does it say? Uh, from whence also uh, we look. Look what it said. Boy, I like this. Uh, for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing Paul says is when He returns, you just remember, son, that that's your Savior that's coming back for you. I don't know if you long to see Him. I long to see Him. I long to see him. I, you know, may, and you, you call me an idealistic fool, but I just long to hold those nail-pierced hands. I long to look on that man that died in my place when he didn't have to. God would have still been God if he hadn't died for your sins or mine. Oh, I like what the songwriter wrote. 
Uh, and she said, when my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide. She spoke. She was blind. You know, Fanny Crosby was blind. She, she was born uh, blind, never did see. And she wrote over 800 gospel songs. And uh, she wrote that uh, when she sees Him, she'll know Him by the nail prints, the scars that are in His hand. Uh, I think that's a beautiful thought. She wasn't going to know Him by His smile, even though there will be a smile. Wasn't going to know Him by His physical appearance, even though there's physical appearance. What she knew so dearly was the nail prints in His hand. The scars where she had, He had paid her sin debt. I want to say we ought to be looking for the Lord because He's our Savior uh, and we're sinners. But I want to say we ought to be looking for the Lord because we're servants and we're His servants. The Bible gives us examples in parables time and time again concerning the life of a Christian as a servant. The Bible uh, over and over again reiterates this thought uh, of a husbandman journeying, leaving, and leaving his household in the hands of his servants. But one thing is always for sure about those stories. The, the husbandman the, or the uh, master of the house always comes back to his house. He always comes back for a reckoning of the work done in his absence. Do you know as we serve God, we're not going to get a lot of reward on this side of heaven. Did you know that? There's people serve God their whole lives. And, and I tell you this, if you think you're going to make money serving God, you better think again. If you think you're never going to be hurt serving God, you better think again. If you think you're only going to make friends and not make any enemies serving God, you better think again. Many times as we serve God, it's a difficult road that we walk. But we have the hope and assurance and encouragement that one day we will be rewarded for all that we've done for the Lord. We ought to be looking for Him because He's our Master and we're His servant. And the Bible says to uh, be not weary in well-doing, well for in due season ye shall reap if ye faint not. We ought to be looking for Him because we're His servants, but I want to say that we ought to be looking for Him because we're sojourners in this world. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me to heaven's golden shore and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. The Bible speaks of Abraham. Uh, though God had given Canaan as an inheritance to Abraham, that's what he did, didn't he? As an inheritance to Abraham. He said, every place where on the sole of thy foot treadeth, everywhere that you walk, Abraham, uh, east, west, north, south, everywhere you look, it all belongs to you. But what does the Bible say about Abraham that he sojourned in the land? Though it belonged to him, still he was a stranger in this world. But he looked for a city whose builder and maker is God, which hath foundations, the Bible says. You know that you and I as believers, we're just passing through this world. Uh, now, one of these days, the Bible speaks of a new heaven, new earth that will be created. And I, I believe in that with my whole heart. But let me just say that this world is not our home. We can't make it our home. A lot of Christians are miserable because they try to make this world their home and their comfort and their encouragement. The Bible teaches that it can't be our home, not if Christ lives within us, because Christ says uh, that the world hated me. It's going to hate you as well. We see the Christian's calling. And I want to give you a final thing. We see the Christian's comfort. Look at the end of the passage, verse 21. What's he going to do when he gets here? Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned, like unto His glorious body, according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. The Bible tells us what our Lord's going to do when He returns for us. And uh, the book of 1 Corinthians echoes this same thought when it says that in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, 
will all be changed. The Bible tells us of a uh, promise of His coming and a promise of our changing. Don't you get sick of being sick sometimes? Don't you get sick of being sick sometimes? How many of you woke up this morning and you hurt? That's what I thought. How many of you would have hurt if you weren't so high on pain pills? Yeah, that's what I thought. You know, our body decays. It's prone to decay. Our body is prone to break down. There comes a point in most people's life when it, they go to bed at night and they put more of themselves in the nightstand than they do in the bed. We get to a place, I mean, you know, fake teeth, fake eyelashes, fake hair, fake lips. Fake eyebrows. I mean, every bit of you, you take off. You're like a Mr. Potato Head. You put it in the drawer at night and you go to bed. And uh, life kind of comes kind of full circle, you know. Most babies, when they're born, uh, they're, they're born fat and bald and toothless. And uh, you live long enough in this world, chances are, before you die, you're going to wind up fat, bald, and toothless. Amen? Our bodies are prone to decay, prone to sickness. I want to give you a word that I hate. Most of you probably hate that word cancer. Don't you hate that word cancer? Don't we hear it so often? There's so many in our church afflicted with it. People that we know, people that we love. I'd say it'd be. I'd say if we asked, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but if we asked for a raise of hands of anyone who has not had their family touched by cancer in some way, there'd probably be no hands. Just about every family is touched by cancer. And this world is prone to decay and our bodies are prone to decay. We get sick, we hurt, we break down. But the Bible tells us that one of these days, this old vile body, the Lord's going to change. We're going to be given, the Bible says, a glorified body. I know we sing the song sometimes, I'll have a new body. No, let, let me break it to you. You're not going to have a new body. You're going to have the same body. But the Bible says it'll be changed. The Bible says that this corruptible shall put on incorruption. This mortal shall put on immortality. The Bible says it will be shown in dishonor, but raised in honor, shown in weakness, but raised in power. One of these days, our bodies won't be prone to decay. One of these days, you say, well, what about those that have died? You know, that was a question the New Testament church had. And the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant concerning them that are asleep in Christ. Uh, the Bible says, For they shall, we shall not prevent them, but the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the trumpet, with the archangel, with the sound of the voice, the archangel of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. It's a comfort to the believer to know that this old body that breaks down, that gets sick. Uh, it's a comfort to know when you stand at the grave uh, of a loved one, you're not standing on burial ground if they knew the Lord, but you're standing on resurrection ground. One of these days, they'll be raised incorruptible. We see a promise in this verse, but I want to say we see a pattern in this verse as well. Uh, our vile bodies will be changed. How? Like unto His glorious body. A lot of mystery in those words. A lot of questions I can't answer in those words. But let me say that the pattern for our glorified bodies will be that of our resurrected Lord's glorified body. A lot of misconception about the glorified body. Uh, a lot of people believe we're going to be like Casper, you know, floating around, some kind of ghost. But we're given a very vivid pattern for it in our Lord's crucified body. Yes, our Lord did have the ability to materialize through a locked door, but He was real enough that He reached out and He told the disciples, He said, reach out and touch me. 
He sat down by the fireside and ate fish and honey with them. He was able to touch them, to feel them, to know them. The Bible gives us a pattern for that. We also know that our Lord was recognizable as our Lord. Now, there's a lot of mystery in that thought too because the Bible tells us as He walked on the road uh, to Emmaus with two disciples, He appeared in another form. Now, I can't answer everything about that, but I know they did not recognize Him at that time. Uh, but the Bible also describes other times when disciples looked upon our Lord and they knew Him to look upon Him. I hate to break it to you, friend. I, I have the personal belief that you're going to look a lot like you do now when you get to heaven. I believe you'll be recognizable just as our Lord. His body was sown in corruption, but raised in incorruption, sown in weakness, raised in power. He was recognizable whenever the disciples saw Him. I believe the same truth is going to be about us. Now, if that upsets you too much, you might have reason to be upset about that. Amen. But uh, it's neither here nor there. What we find is that the pattern is given. Our Lord's glorified body, incorruptible. No more sickness, no more pain, no more parting over there. No more tears, no more uh, heartaches, but a glorified body. I want to give you a final third thing, and then I'll hush. I want to say we not only see a promise and a pattern, but we see the power by which this is accomplished. Look at what it says at the end of the verse. It says, according to the working, whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. That word working has the idea of energy behind it or efficiency. In other words, the power by which God is able to subdue all things to Himself is the same power by which He raises us up. Well, how does He raise us up? The Bible says, If ye are dead, or if Christ be not risen, then are ye dead. Your faith is in vain. The Bible says that uh, by the resurrecting power of our Lord and Savior, that's the power by which He is to subdue all things. I don't know if you realize how important the resurrection is to doctrine, to your everyday life. Do you know there's a lot of heretics out here that do not believe that Christ literally rose from the dead? Did you know that? Did you know that some of them edited the Bibles that a lot of people are reading too? Amen? That did not believe that our Lord really rose from the grave. You'll find if you used to look in the international version of the Bible, you'd find used to they took them completely out, but people got on to them too much for that. But if you were to go to the end of the book of Mark, you'd find that there's doubt cast upon the last 12 verses of the book of Mark. In fact, in most new international versions of the or perversions of the Bible today, you'll find a line that is directly above those verses and a marginal note that reads that these verses were not in the oldest manuscripts. That's what it'll say. Now, that's a lot of fancy words for saying we don't believe in these last 12 verses of Mark. Do you know why there was a desire to take the last 12 verses of the book of Mark out? Because they presented the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of our Lord from the dead. Now, do you know that uh, it's Roman Catholic doctrine to deny that physical bodily resurrection from the dead? That's part of their dogma, and it's Gnostic doctrine as well. There's a reason they want to deny those things. Do you know why? Because if you can spiritualize everything supernatural about the Word of God, then we have a natural God that's impotent and powerless and has no authority in our lives. The Bible says that our Lord, after He rose from the grave, that He sat down on the right hand of the Father expecting till His enemies be made His footstool. That's the power by which we are going to be raised up. You say, how can I believe that my loved ones will be raised from the dead? You can believe it because the same power that raised our Lord up is the power that will raise them up. So how can I be sure that I'll see my loved ones again? You can be just as sure of that as you can be of the resurrection of our Lord. It's the same power that will raise them up. I wonder tonight how you're living your life. Are you living expecting the Lord to return? I know we have to plan for the future, and I believe the Lord encourages us 
to plan for the future to a degree. But let me say that every Christian ought to live this way, that if today was your very last day, you'd be satisfied with it. What if today was the last day that you ever lived? I want you to take just a moment, think back over your day and what you've done. Think back over the time and how you've spent it today. If today was the last day, the record books were sealed, if finish was wrote on your life today, would you be satisfied with what you've done for Jesus Christ? Can I tell you a stark and sobering truth? Today could be the last day of your life, just as it could be the last day of my life. Not just because uh, death can come at any moment, but because our Lord's return is imminent. He could come at any moment as well. You say, I'm healthy. I feel good. I'm not going to die. Let me say, number one, that does not guarantee you're going to live. But number two, even if you don't leave this world by death, you might leave this world by our Lord's return. And your life is finished just the same as far as the labor and work you can do for Him. I encourage you tonight, if there's some area of your life that's at ought with God, get it right. Some area of your life that you could have surrendered to Christ and be surrendering to Him in a greater way, get it right tonight. Don't hesitate. We ought to all live looking and expecting His return with our heads.